periodically tuning into myself and reminding myself of all the many, many things for which I'm grateful, it shifts your internal compass and it makes it so that you become more grateful. It just does. I, you got to trust me on it. The other thing I love yep. about gratitude practice is it's free and there's no side effects. Anything yep. that's free, no side effects. We should all be doing. You know, uh-huh. we should all be uh-huh. doing this. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. Welcome to Heal. On today's episode, we get to talk to Dr. Amy Rothenberg a leader in the naturopathic profession about how to restore your health after cancer treatment and what you can do to make your body inhospitable to future cancer development. She not only supports others in how to treat and heal from cancer, she shares about her own journey with cancer. Dr. Amy Rothenberg is a licensed naturopathic doctor for the last 37 years and was honored as the 2017 American Association of Naturopathic Physicians Physician of the Year. She spearheaded the successful licensure effort in Massachusetts and has sat on many boards of leadership in medicine and public health associations. Her book, You Finish Treatment, Now What? Natural Medicine Approaches for Cancer Survivors and Thrivers is an Amazon bestseller. She blogs for the Huffington Post and Medium and loves to share a naturopathic perspective on health and societal issues. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Hi, thank you so much, Dr. Amy Rothenberg, for coming and joining the HEAL audience today. I am really excited about this conversation. Thank you for having me. So you actually are one of my teachers who I got to learn from in medical school. I took one of the New England School of Homeopathic Medicine, Nash homeopathic courses, and have been a great influence on my practicing as a homeopath and as a naturopath. And I'm just really grateful to get to be in your presence and share some of your incredible knowledge with the audience. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Somebody recently referred to me as an elder which I guess I am at 63, but I feel like I'm 25. So it always strikes me as a little bit of a jarring comment when people say things like that. But thank you. And we, we always love teaching, especially people who are so dedicated to healing and to getting to the root cause and to working with patients in a whole person kind of way. It's really our, our greatest pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and your newest book, You Finish Treatment, Now What?, has, you know, it's really a, a roadmap and a, and a way to think about what does it mean to heal after cancer treatment in particular. And that, you know, strikes a new found aspect of my life. You know, my, my dad actually didn't even really get to the point of treating cancer. He had passed away from pancreatic Mm -hmm. cancer, pretty fast diagnosis, but it's, it's brought me into another level of awareness about, you know, I've also had patients and clients I've worked with that have had very successful cancer treatment, but then there's sort of this both emotional and sometimes like in reality, like the world, like they're done with their oncologist. They've completed maybe a rigorous protocol of chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, or any of the above. And then it's like this moment happens where there's the celebration of being cancer free or in a watch and wait but it's like a void of, of now, literally now, what do I do? Like, I, I love yeah. the way that you phrased that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had a patient this week who came in, who 
had lymphoma and had every reason to believe that she will not die from this lymphoma, but it was a really pretty rigorous treatment over the course of 18 months. And she said, I felt like after that, I was hung out to dry <laughs> and they forgot to pull me in and nobody told me anything. And it was absolutely terrifying. Terrifying for, I think, a lot of people for a few reasons. One is that there is a kind of, of course, fear of recurrence that's there. And then also many people are left with symptoms from the cancer or more likely from the treatment itself. Because of so many advances in early detection, many people discover, unlike your father, unfortunately, but many people discover their cancer on routine uh, exams, the pap smear, you know, colonoscopy, screening lung cancer for previous smokers, et cetera. These are people who often get diagnosed early and their chances of, of beating the cancer are quite, quite good. But nonetheless, they, treatments can be harsh, necessarily harsh, and people are left with a whole host of symptoms from fatigue and brain fog to anxiety and depression to lymphedema, peripheral neuropathy, changes in desire and satisfaction with intimacy. It kind of goes along a whole lot of different areas. And there are so many natural medicine approaches to address the symptoms that arise from cancer care. And so a lot of the book is about that. And then the, the bigger part of the book is really about how to shift the internal environment to be less hospitable to further cancer and to give people the evidence-based information and tools to basically put the odds in their favor. You know, we're all gonna die, we're gonna die of something at some point, but many people who go through cancer treatment will not die from their cancer. I mean, some will, sure, but but a lot will not. And so, we, and, and, and the people who are living with cancer, same thing, I have many patients in my practice who are never going to be cancer-free. It is going to be a life-ending illness, but it might be in five, 10, or 15 years. They live with a low-grade cancer, let's say, and treatments that are not so harsh that they can live with them. But what are the things that we can do actively to help enhance quality of life and prevent side effects from those medications taken, similar to what we would do with somebody who was during cancer care? So the book really grew out of my deepening understanding as a cancer survivor myself, that the conventional medical world means very, very well. They do everything they can. They don't have the bandwidth at this point to really go do the deep dive on what are the natural medicine lifestyle approaches that can really impact quality of life and life, so, you know, life outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so would you share a bit more about your own experience. I mean, you've been working with people in different stages of having cancer or after cancer care throughout your practice, but also then, you know, this particular topic kind of came home to roost in your own life. And that was some of the most impactful parts of hearing your experience personally on the court with cancer. In particular, in the book, one of the things that stood out to me was you sharing about the the cancer advice column that can kind of come your way when yeah, that's what you're yeah. dealing oh, with. Yeah, talk about that. You bet. You bet. Well, I I was living a perfectly healthy life and and a beautiful. I had a healthy lifestyle, a loving partner, work I loved, a beautiful home, three healthy, you know, vibrant children who are now, of course, adults. And I was I found a lump in my breast actually on January first. Happy New Year, 2014. After being out the whole night before until about four in the morning, ballroom dancing. My husband and I are big ballroom dancers. So I was at the top of my game. I looked great. You know, I never felt better. And I felt a lump in my breast. And 
I knew that having never had any fibrocystic breast disease, nursed three kids for a total of about six years and you know, knew my breasts pretty well. I, I knew I had such a strong family history. I had a kind of sinking feeling in my stomach. And uh, a couple of days later, I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. And thank goodness, you know, negative nodes, clean margins and all of that. And at that time, I had tested right before, a couple of years prior, I tested negative for the BRCA mutation. But I got tested a couple of different times over the previous 10 years because people kept getting cancer in my family and it just seemed like it must be something genetic, but I kept coming back negative and taking that information and continuing to live my pristine lifestyle, you know, including avid exerciser, anti-inflammatory diet, a handful of kind of anti-cancer supplements, just to kind of hedge my bets. And anyway, I did everything conventional medicine offered and they did ask me to get retested, which I did. And I turned out to carry the BRCA1 mutation. Of course, my genes didn't change, but the test has gotten better over the years. And our family carries a deletion, not a mutation. It's a little harder to see. It's a deletion is sort of a kind of mutation. And anybody tested now since about 2012 will be tested for all of that. If you were tested before and tested negative, that's a conversation to have with a genetics counselor, for sure. Like, do I need to retest? And I only had tested because I was ready. You know, I finally knew I didn't want a fourth child. It took me a while to get there. I started testing at about 48, I think I was. It took me that long to know I didn't want a fourth kid. And I was only testing because I was prepared to remove my breasts and remove my ovaries. Well, the universe had a different plan for me. Went through a double mastectomy four rounds of chemo, and there was a little bit of lymphovascular invasion in the tumor itself. So the head of radiation oncology at Mass General said, well, you know, if you were my wife or daughter, I really recommend radiation. You'll never look back and regret it if you ever had a recurrence. And I, I concurred with that. So I completed four, eight, 28 rounds of radiation to my chest wall. Then because I had the, the back mutation, the idea was to, you know, give my chance, my body a chance to rest and, and recover from the breast cancer treatment and then to remove my ovaries. I had estrogen receptor positive cancer. So that estrogen suppression medication puts you a little bit at risk for uterine cancer. So I was going to have a complete hysterectomy. And my doctor said, why don't you wait a year? You know, it's not a big rush, wait a year. And I was like, look, this year is about July. It's been so crappy. Let's just go for it. Let's just go for it. So I waited until my hematocrit, you know, the red blood count reached a 36. And then I went to have a prophylactic hysterectomy at which time they found cancer on both ovaries. So again, clean margins, negative nodes, clean abdominal wash, stage one ovarian cancer, kind of unheard of, not metastatic, it was its own cancer. And prior to, to that timing in, in the 2000, early 2000s, the treatment for that really would be completely directly done. But they shifted to more to the take no prisoners kind of approach, How about mm -hmm. 12 more rounds of chemo. So I ended my 2014, not very good year, on January 2nd, 2015, I had my last of, of 16 rounds of chemo total. And, you know, at my last chemo, I said to my husband, all right, six months, let's do a triathlon. I've never done one. I need a goal. I need to be focused on something wow. else. I'll pick up my exercise because I know that's what the one thing that research tells us is good for, it changes everything in terms of cancer survivorship and getting your energy back. And, and we did it with, with our three kids and my siblings, about 25 of us all together, which shows that conventional medicine, especially when married to the natural integrative approaches is really kind of an incredible way to address some serious illnesses such as cancer.
There was so much in that, Amy. I just appreciate all of it. I mean, that, you know, it was your personal journey, but there was a lot of really incredible just highlights of the ways to think about it and, and assessing your genetics. And I mean, that's kind of brings a question of, of that. I mean, you're a naturopathic physician, you've lived an incredible, I mean, I, your words, right. You've, you've lived an incredibly pristine health lifestyle and have a lot of consciousness. And yet here you were with, you know, positive breast cancer and ovarian cancer, you know, in that world of, of prevention, I think that it's arming us with the, the balance between the knowledge of the genetics and then what can we do to take care of our overall health? I mean, that's what I'm hearing. Right. Well, also, I will say that most of the people that developed breasts or ovarian cancer in my family were in their 30s or 40s, and I was well into my 50s. So uh, I, yeah. I do think there was some positive impact. And the longer we live, I mean, the more information that they have, I think that this is one of the genetic mutations they will figure out how to fix. Yeah, uh, currently on a, a kind of newer type drug, although it's not that new anymore because I've been on it for about eight years. Harp inhibitor. Harp inhibitor is really geared for people with this kind of genetic profile, and I think it's really a game changer for sure. But you know, I also I spend a lot of time with a lot of patients come to me who also lived a healthy lifestyle. Not everybody, but many who did, and who feel guilty, bad, shame, you know, feeling failure. Yeah, say, you know, bad things happen to good people all the time. And it's, it's terrible. Of course, it's much worse when good things happen to bad people. That makes us feel even worse. But, you know, <laughs> bad, bad things happen to good people. And, you know, we can't sit around and blame ourselves. We can take as much control as we can. Self-agency is so important. And we don't know the roles. I mean, we, we know, but I don't think we know the extent and the role that our environment plays and yeah. the interplay with cancer and cancer development. Everybody has cancer cells floating around. And usually our immune systems are good at kind of going after them and, you know, pack manning them up, or there's other processes in the immune system, apoptosis and autophagy and all other kinds of bio, biology, big words that, you know, we, I think, do our best when we minimize the toxins that we can, that we know, you know, we try to eat organic when we can, get rid of the chemicals in the cleaning products and personal care products, support healthy emunctory systems in our body. In other words, getting, you know, having good bowel movements, urinating adequately, breathing deeply, using our capacity to perspire. And then I always add the fit the monctory, which is getting rid of the stress and the stressful people and stressful activities and things we really hate doing, like just figure out ways of living in the world in more harmony and having better stress management skills and strategies. And I think that that it goes a long way. And at a certain point, I it, except if somebody has known exposures, you know, asbestos exposure, cigarette smoke exposure, excessive alcohol use, things that we know, people who eat a lot of, you know, pre prepared meats like salami and bologna, like those things are associated with colon cancer. We, we know certain things are directly related to certain types of cancers. Short of that, you know, no one's ever going to really know why yeah. a person got cancer. And that that living with that unknown, you know, it's part of the mystery of life. You know, how do we know when somebody falls in love? You know, what what is the chemistry that's happening there? I mean, there's a lot of things we don't know. And I I'm comfortable living a little bit holding that mystery and shifting and pivoting more toward what are the things that I can do that there is evidence that show can be useful for me at, you know, at this time and for my patients. And I will say that 
more of the work I have done prior to the writing of this book was with patients going through conventional cancer care. There's so much that we can do to help enhance the efficacy of conventional cancer care and prevent the side effects and address the side effects that arise. And then afterward to pivot more toward the content of my book around shifting that internal landscape, if you will. Absolutely. I I talked to my my clients about you know, cancer treatment and cancer care is like climbing a mountain and, and from the base camp to summit is like the active treating of the cancer and working on what needs to happen to actually, you know, either surgically remove or, or, you know, chemically kill off the cancer cells. And then you summit and that's like, can be the declaration of, you know, watch and wait or, or being cancer free, but then there's safely getting you off the mountain and in, in mountaineering, That there's more deaths and more injuries and more accidents happen on the way down the mountain because you you have kind of stopped paying attention or there's an exhaustion factor. A lot of resources got used to summit the mountain. And so that's been a way I've, I've really created like, and there is so much in natural medicine and naturopathic medicine that can can support people going up and coming back down, you know, that whole journey, that that whole adventure. I really love that analogy. I love that analogy. And one thing I will say for any listeners who are recently diagnosed with cancer or know somebody who is, and of course it's so common that probably everybody listening does or will soon, there's often a good month or two before treatments begin. So a lot of information has to be gathered, lab works have to be gathered, PET scans have to be done. There's there's often a a bit of a a breather between the shock of the diagnosis and when treatment begins. And I love working with people in that tender time, first of all, to address the psycho-emotional blunt force information they've just received, but also to work with prehab. We know that people who go into treatments well-fed, well-nourished, meaning they they are both eating the right things and absorbing it well, well rested, well hydrated, cleared the deck in terms of stress, will have better outcomes. And so I like to use that time to really focus on what are the habits of mind that we can develop to help us through the rough spots? What are the kind of foods we can prepare in bulk and freeze in the freezer? How do we want to line up the support from our loved ones, our family, our church or synagogue community, whatever people might have, hopefully something to help us through the tough time. And one of the chapters in the book, which is people sometimes say, say to me, why did you put this in the book? It's called Caregivers as Survivors, because many people who go through cancer care have been caregivers or are going to be caregivers. Rosalind, Rosalind Carter, you know, who is, is I just, I, learned, I just read recently is, was just diagnosed with Alzheimer's at like, she must be about 105 by now. But the, she says her, her, her big quote was, that there's only four types of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. And I could not agree more. And so I spend a lot of time with the person in the room, you know, how are we taking care of you? And how are we shoring up the rides to radiation every day and the healthy food things? And who's going to lay out the supplements and try to really get involved with the details, not only the details of a plan. I, I am very comfortable with so many colleagues and other people in integrative medicine and integrative oncology, creating beautiful plans for patients, but oftentimes they're unendurable and they're not sustainable and they're overwhelming. So I'm very interested in helping create plans for the person I have in front of me, 
not the patient I want in front of me. Yes. I had a, a gal in here today who, uh, interestingly enough, it was not a cancer patient, but she had read my book. And after she read my book, she said, this book could be called, you have diabetes, now what? Or you yes. have now what? <laughs> Which is true in many respects. There's a, a portion of the book that is just around really healthy living. But she said she came to me because it seemed like in the book I was rational and I wasn't going to like, I wasn't going <laughs> to the entire book of natural medicine at her. You, you have to hear things. And I think that as a patient, you know, I was somebody who was, I was going to be sort of the exemplary patient and do every single thing that everybody told me to do. But the way I managed that was that I really narrowed who I was taking information from. And you alluded to this earlier in our conversation. When you have a cancer diagnosis, if you are at all public about it, everybody will come out of the woodwork to share with you, you have to take this herb. I read about this juicing thing. Have you ever thought about acupuncture? And it can be very overwhelming. And even for somebody like myself, who was very experienced, I'd already been in practice for 30 years when I was diagnosed, you know, I did not want information from anybody. So I got very, very good at, I had a, first of all, I had a pre-written email, which read something like, thank you so much for your concern. I am very, very excited about the team that Paul and I put together and I'm not taking any further information and I'm not going to be responding further to this email. Love Amy. That was it. I said that I probably loved a, that when you wrote about that probably book, a hundred times. Yeah, to have and a pre-written answer that was so yeah. great. Yeah, so great. Oh, anything you can template in life, you should template. I, I, <laughs> totally. I got very good in public settings, putting up my hand. Oh, I'm not taking any cancer stories. And people say, No, 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 it's a good story. And I would have to sometimes say, I mean, no cancer stories. How are your children? And I would launch into something else because the last thing I wanted to talk about, and I have to say, even this many years later and this many triathlons that I've done since I was diagnosed, you know, I'm really in pristine shape. There are some people that kind of put me in the cancer box. I see them infrequently once or twice a year, and they'll always come over to me with a very concerned look on their face. How are you? And I feel like say, I'm great. How are you? I did a triathlon on Sunday is what I want to say to people because nobody wants to be put in a box with the, with the word cancer smeared all yeah. over it. Nobody. So I, I really emphasize with my, I role play with my patients, how they can keep themselves from that. And this is true for anybody with chronic disease. You know, I'm sure there are some people who that's what their identity is and they want people to ask and they love the attention. The vast majority of people either want to move on are not pleased with who they are and want to talk about anything else. That, that may change as people get older. I do find that people who are older, who have aches and pains and this and that, some serious illness, some not so serious illness. I, I call it the organ recital. You get together with the old family members and it's sort of the, the organ recital begins and they take you through the bowel movements and they take you yeah. through the, uh -huh, the new medications. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, I try to like escape from those conversations personally, because I, I just need to be talking about something else. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I really appreciate your conversations about the, there's a balance between discipline in the plan that you're going to execute, but then also really honing in on what's obtainable and achievable and make sense inside of your life. Because I mean, particularly with cancer therapy, I mean, you really could make it a full-time job of juicing and supplements and saunas and hydrotherapy and exercise and deep breathing and meditation and, you know, spiritual work and, 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 and it's like often 
you know, if you're in conventional treatment, the impact of the treatment is pretty exhausting and there's minimal bandwidth and, and kind of brain power and energy. And so is there sort of like a top line here are the things that you would say, like in priority, like think of this and this first, like, where would you put the biggest emphasis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's, it's really patient dependent. Because some people come in and they're, they've already got the exercise piece covered. You know, avid exerciser, right. they feel like crap. They get out on their stationary bike and they do a half an hour. So it depends on the person. But all things being equal, you know, like garden variety, patient A through F, you know, I would say that the number one thing that people should think about as cancer survivors is exercise. We, the studies on survivorship and exercise all cause death from cancer is significantly lower in people who exercise. So what do we mean by exercise? We mean, I would say half an hour to an hour a day of some kind of movement. Exercise comes in three flavors. We have aerobic, we have weight bearing or resistance training, and we have stretching. If you're only gonna do one, do the aerobic. What the aerobic does is it, and they all do this to some extent, is that they raise your threshold for feeling stress and they dissipate the stress that that you have. And it helps you to be better perfused meaning that your blood is circulating better. And so what being better perfused means is that any other positive changes or you make or or any positive lifestyle habits you keep up with are amplified by doing exercise. And if you are already exercising, consider exercising more and pushing yourself a little harder as long as you've been cleared by whether it's your cardiologist or your family doctor, you don't want to get hurt. Only thing about exercise I say to people, particularly those who have not been exercising a lot through their whole life, is you got to try to find something that you like and something where you won't get hurt. And then depending on the individual, some people are very social by nature. You know, what is it that's going to get somebody off the couch and away from the computer, away from the screens? A lot of times if people make the commitment to themselves, they won't do it. But if they make the commitment to somebody else, we're going to do Monday morning walk at nine o'clock, they generally won't crap out on that. And I'm also interested in, there's a whole trans theoretical model of change, which has to do with people need to be ready. So people, if I, if I have a person, I had a gal in here this morning who just hates exercise. She she doesn't like to sweat. She doesn't like to go outside. She's worried about ticks. She's worried about the sun. She just really closed down. And so I knew that in the interview and our time together today, I was just going to plant the seeds for this. She's just got to pull it over. I'm not going to push it jump down her throat, gonna mull it over and get her ready, make sure she's got good fitting sneakers, you know, one by one, one step at a time. After exercise, the second most important thing I would say has to do with, it's a tie between eating an anti-inflammatory diet, which I can tell you the broad strokes in my experience, and working on one's head game. So mm-hmm. basically stress management, being able to learn how to control the response to the stressors in your life, getting rid of some of the stressors if you can, and finding a peaceful place. And, you know, and, and I always ask people, do you have ten, any tendency for irritability, anxiety, or depression? And these are things that many people are working through. Many people have adverse events of childhood, trauma-informed background. Of course, people come fully, you know, experiencing, they've arrived at where they are in my office from obviously their genetic inheritance, the kind of family they grew up in, choices they made, accidents that happened to them, lifestyle choices they've chosen, 
And so everybody is a complex individual that I need to try to learn about and understand as best I can. And we know that there's a whole field of psychoneuroimmunology where the mind affects the nervous system and the nervous system affects the immune system. Well, we're all dependent on our immune system to keep us healthy, cancer patients more than anybody because it's the immune system that's gonna keep the cancer at bay. So anything we can do to lower our stress and our stress response, remember that you have a stress and then you have the stress response and the stress response can go on much longer than the stress. So what do people need to do to unwind from the stress response? You know, a good cry, a good laugh, a hug, time in nature, doing something creative, singing, drawing, painting, et cetera, connecting with other people. There are many ways that we dissipate the stress that we have. And there, you know, from mindfulness meditation to breathing exercises, to hobbies, to connecting with loved ones, et cetera. There's, a, there's lots to say about that, but those are the three biggies, exercise, anti-inflammatory diet, and working on the head game. Yeah. Yep. 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 You're definitely speaking my language. And I really appreciate that you paired the anti-inflammatory diet with the head game as sort of like on an equal playing field, because I yeah. more and more and more, yeah. and you know, my background was, I, I did four years of research in psychoneuroimmunology and my practice oh. has incorporated a lot of the interrelationship between emotional trauma, stress, immune system function, hormone, endocrine system function. And you know, it's like you can end up chasing this wheel forever if you're not unwinding the way that somebody's yeah. body is responding to the world around them, you know, and for 100%. some people, it's putting in hobbies and just creating some of those structures. And for some people, a deeper dive into EMDR or therapy or really using this opportunity yeah. to start to work on some of those deeper things. It just depends, like you said, on the on the person in front yeah. of you. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And the planting seeds, I love that because you know, just letting people open up to those ideas. I, I offer people a menu of options of lifestyle and supportive care, just like a menu in the restaurant. And I literally say, I want you to pick your favorites, the things that are going to be easiest, the things you're like, oh, I could do that. No problem. Like that won't take much. So we can start to build the traction in their body of maybe it's lymphatic drainage. Maybe it's a little support of their microbiome, you know, things that can start to make that impact. And then it's like a snowball starts to build where something start working yeah. and opening up and then we can kind of take on the more, you know, the places that they might be a little more resistant or stuck to and, and that are a little harder for them to take on. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite chapters in the whole book was when you were talking about some of the specific recommendations for specific problems after cancer and you talked yeah. about sex. Because oh, yeah. I've that actually seen this a lot <laughs> with people post-cancer therapy where it's like, there's a common cultural conversation of you survived cancer. You should be grateful to be alive. Get over it. Yeah. yeah, I know. I always, when people say that, you know, I, and I think I wrote that in the book, I'm like, we should all be grateful to be alive. Right. You know, like, <laughs> and, and nobody's getting out alive. So, I mean, it's true. A lot of cancer people say that to me, but yet they also, once the dust settles and maybe some months or years have gone by, they realize, wow, you know, like I really miss that part of my life. And it's, it, there's so many factors that go into it. And thankfully there's more and more research on it. And some cancer centers now have whole subcenters on this topic. Part of that's driven by younger and younger people, sadly being diagnosed with cancer and not putting up with, you know, no more sex. I'm 35 years old, you know, maybe somebody who's 80 or 85, but even, I'm telling you, even people in that age range, many 
have very active, interesting, fun, pleasurable, meaningful, connected intimacy, solo intimacy, you know, or with a partner or partners. So we think about that a lot and that there's there's a lot of reasons why things go sideways with sex with certain kinds of treatments and certain kinds of cancers. The obvious ones are the kind of cancers where there are hormones involved and after treatment for men with prostate cancer, women with breast or other female, you know, uterine or ovarian cancers, there can be hormone suppression medication. And that will oftentimes take the sex drive away, just that that natural urge will go away. Some people experience that women, but in a female body, individuals experience that sometimes after menopause as well. Some people slow down as they get older. Some people, you know, I've really seen a range there. And I think that the whole taboo nature related to talking about sex and what feels good and what do I want, we're, we're finally getting past that. Not in every subculture for sure, we see in some places around the world that is going the opposite direction. But in more progressive leaning circles, there is much more to be, there's much more known by now about sexual desire and what does it mean to feel connected? You know, a lot of my patients will say, well, I, for the woman in, the, in a heterosexual relationship, I need to feel close before I want to have sex. And the husband says, well, I want to have sex in order to feel close. And if they don't have a conversation about it, that's not going to be very happy for anybody. Yep. I talk to women a lot about maintaining vaginal health and how we can use, even in people with estrogen receptor positive cancers, all of the research points to the fact that topical estrogens are safe and will not put somebody at further risk for cancer. So that's important for anybody who gets chronic bladder infections after estrogen suppression or postmenopausally using at least topical estrogens, if not estrogen replacement therapy. And then I think it's, it really comes down to a lot of, about communication. I like to encourage people to use sex toys in their, if they're having sex with another person, vibrators, you know, it's some, some upwards of 60 or 70% of American women own and have vibrators. So it's not like a taboo that it once was. And figuring out what you like and what feels good to you and remembering that sex is all about, you know, connection and pleasure and and if it's not not much not much more and also for me as a doctor to understand that for some people this is a non-issue they yeah. never were very sexual they're not really interested in masturbating they don't really ever want a partner if they do they're not sex is not going to be part of that partnership and that's okay too there's a there's a, a range and but i think for survivors of of any kind of cancer treatment Everything related to depression, low energy, brain fog, self-esteem, body image issues, digestive problems. Maybe somebody now is having to use a catheter. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things that we see. So I broach that topic uh, gingerly. You know, I often say, I'm just curious in terms of like things related to intimacy. Is there anything you want to talk about? If you, I'm happy to talk about that with you. And I don't push it if somebody doesn't seem ready. Sometimes it's the second or third interview where that will come in. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's actually one of my, I have a pre-session form that all of my clients and patients will fill out before every session, just as sort of a self-assessment. And yeah. one of the questions I have them self-assess is on their libido. And I talk about it, not just about sex, but that just lust for life, a sense of vitality, yeah. desire for creative expression. Like our libido can translate into 
art or creativity or gardening or just a desire to like use our life force energy in a creative way that that may yeah. not ever express itself in the way yeah. that we typically think of sex. And I also love educating people that from he- from the top of our head to the tip of our toes is an erogenous zone. <laughs> so, you know, there may be biological aspects that that your your you know, your genitalia are not responding or working in the same way that you were used to before treatment, but that there's a whole world of discovery that can happen. And actually in sex study and and people that, you know, I have friends that literally are are coaches and therapists that their whole practice revolves around expanding people's relationship to intimacy and and it's yeah. as much a head game as it is a physical thing. So as we start to discover things around our mind and visualizations and all kinds of other ways of accessing, it just, it's often a turning point, much like menopause or andropause or or just other changes that many, many, yeah. many people go through their relationship to their sex and sexuality changes throughout you their bet. lifetime. And what are, cancer what can be a component. We, you bet. One of the things that I would like to remind people is that if you don't have some of the hormonal support, you know, surging through your body, that a lot of times what's not going to happen is this sort of spontaneous, oh, let's just have sex. It's not going to happen because you're not going to have that same chemistry going on. So this is a time when, you know, the idea of a date or something romantic or something that used to be romantic for you. Sometimes I'll tell people, go give yourself a head start. And you know, tell your partner, you're going to meet upstairs in a half an hour. Give yourself a head start. A lot of times that will, that will also help. Yeah. Things along. Yeah, absolutely. That's, it's so great. I just really appreciated the, the folding that into the conversation. So when you look from your own personal experience and, and, and all the years that you've worked with people, what would you say are your like, on, on the kind of the psychological or mental emotional side, what are the top like I similarly, like kind of three or four things of places to sort of look to, I don't know, deal with the impact of having gone, like, what do you see that most people are dealing with after cancer therapy is complete on the more emotional, psychological level? What are they dealing with or how am I helping them or both? Let's yeah, both ultimately, but we'll start with like, what do you see most commonly people are struggling with? And then what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's an uptick in anxiety. There's something I talk about in the book, somatosensory amplification, where people feel a little something. And even though it's so irrelevant, like, oh, my God, I hope I don't have cancer. You know, I had a very funny one in my own life where I was in the kitchen, working in the kitchen. One of the cupboard doors was open and I kind of smashed my head into the cupboard and I got a big egg on my head. And this was probably a year after my treatment ended. And I I put ice on it. You know, I took homeopathic arnica, whatever else we do. And the next day I woke up and the egg was gone, but I had a smashing headache and I rolled over in bed and I said to my husband, oh, I have such a bad headache. I hope I don't have brain cancer. You know, kind of, kind of, kind of like serious, even though that's ridiculous. He said, oh, you, you know, you did hit your head yesterday. I said, oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that I think is pretty common. So of course, once in a while, people have a symptom that seems random and it is a recurrence. So that's the problem, you know, hmm. so anxiety can be heightened. I mean, on the flip side of that, some people, take their cancer diagnosis and treatment as a wake-up call. You know, this is not a dress rehearsal. This is the only life I have if they don't believe in reincarnation. And they, you know, get rid of the, the the things they really don't want to do and they shift their posture and they go toward what they want. But there's certainly anxiety. Some people are depressed. Chemotherapy is a known depressant, many kinds of chemotherapies. One of the side effects is depression, not just from fatigue, not just from nausea, not just from 
you know, low blood counts. It, it literally is one of the side effects. So we can see people with depression. And of course, everybody comes in fully loaded. Many people were anxious and depressed before cancer diagnosis. Some people will go toward irritable. Just they, and by irritable, I don't necessarily mean snapping at other people, but just a shorter bandwidth for patients. Something that they used to be able to do, let's say, sit down to pay the bills or and most people hopefully are on auto pay. But, you know, and anything like that where it takes some brain power, or getting on the phone to make appointments and you're on the... You know, you want this, press one. If you want that, press two. Like they just, they can't do it. They just have some, somebody else has to do it for them or they have to do it only at the time of day where they feel best, maybe first thing in the morning or, you know, after dinner, whatever their personal best time of the day is. So those are the main psychological things. And I think that the other thing that is is heightened for a lot of people is they they come to face-to-face, you know, right there with their mortality. And so for some people, it's kind of what I've already said, that's a real stimulating, positive spiral moment. And for other people, it's terrifying. So that's that's the kind of psycho-emotional things that I see most often. And then I think those two things, those three things are kind of exacerbated by overall fatigue and brain fog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thirdly, by discomfort and pain. So regardless of what the discomfort and pain might be, let's say it's peripheral neuropathy or getting sick all the time or chronic backache uh, caused by the cancer or the cancer treatment, those are going to exacerbate the psycho-emotional things. And it's a cycle, you know, round and around we go. So we can break in anywhere. You can break in on the psychological area that often helps the physical, break in on the physical that often helps the psychological. For tools, I am a, I, I love the modality that we many naturopathic doctors use of called of homeopathy using very minute substances of mostly plant and mineral bases we use what we call constitutional homeopathic remedy based on the whole person very gentle gentle medicine i love using homeopathy because i can give a, a remedy based on the totality of the person i'm not breaking them down into their component parts a lot of naturopathic medicine philosophy is very holistic whole person medicine, but a lot of our diagnostic approaches and our therapeutic modalities are quite mechanistic and we're breaking them down. The person's liver enzymes are elevated. We're giving them herbs for their liver support. You know, a person has problems with their memory. We're giving them certain supplements and botanicals to help with the memory. With homeopathy, we can give a remedy for the whole person. So I I love using homeopathy. I love the exercise prescription for the psycho-emotional pieces, enormous. I love all the things we've already talked about. That sounds like an area of your expertise in terms of using skills and approaches that we know help calm the spirit, calm the nerves, raise the vibration, if you will, from meditation to qigong to tai chi to breathing exercises to journaling. And probably the the one thing that I will recommend to almost everybody, unless the person's unless the person's really not open to it, is developing any kind, any kind at all of gratitude practice. Mm. We research on gratitude is pretty mind. It's immense. It's immense. And yeah. It's immense. And I have a, I've written several articles. You can find them. Just type in my name, Amy Rutherford, gratitude. All different ways people can can call up the gratitude card. I know for me. When I am doing one of these triathlons and I, I get kind of bored on the on the, the 5K run, 
my, I'll run through my gratitude Rolodex. Now, some of you might be too young to know what a Rolodex is. You can look it up. But I literally <laughs> just flip through my Rolodex of every person that I am grateful for regarding my life and my upbringing and my education and training and my family and community and my doctors and healers. And I, it, the list is long. The list is long. And then I have a daily gratitude practice, which I just run through. I mean, I can do it right for you right now. Thank you for my pristine health, this beautiful man by my side, my three healthy, wonderful kids, this home I adore, a job I like. You know, it, it just goes on. It rolls off my tongue. And the reason I do it every day is because it's easy to let the world and the stressors of the world, whether they're very personal and internal or related to your health and illness, or whether you look at all outside related to our economy, our environment, racism, the war in Ukraine. I mean, it, it, it's not yeah. great out there. So periodically tuning into myself and reminding myself of all the many, many things for which I'm grateful, it shifts your internal compass and it makes it so that you become more grateful. It just does. I, I mean, you got to trust me on it. The other thing I love yep. about gratitude practice is it's free and there's no side effects. Anything yep. that's free, no side effects. We should all be doing. You know, uh-huh. we should all be uh-huh. doing this. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. No, and I, I really notice, you know, one of the aspects I work on with all of my clients is thinking of themselves as having a relationship with their body the same way they would a relationship with a family member. Like, like mm-hmm. what is what is that? Do you even talk? Do you have communication? Are you in partnership? Mm-hmm. Are you adversaries? Mm-hmm. Are you sort of just dragging your body through life and pretending that it's not there or hoping it doesn't ever say anything or do anything? And we kind of do some visualizations around shifting that. And in a healthy marriage, they say in healthy relationships, you need 10 positive things for every one negative. Like if somebody's in a relationship and it's like your partner's always, you know, bringing everything that doesn't work and every breakdown all the time, like that erodes the foundation of that healthy relationship. And so right. that's another aspect of a gratitude practice. Where we can start to look at like actually getting even specific about your body, your cells, your immune system, your gut, your heart, your circulation, you know, finding those things that you like about yourself, discovering those places that you actually can be grateful for, you know, like nausea sucks and and throwing up and being sick on a regular basis. But there also can be another part where I'm grateful that my body knows and has the wisdom to rid me of toxins that no longer serve me, you know, like, like there's so many places to bring that in. And, and yes, I love I love free and accessible and, and eat, you know, things that are right there in front of you. And, and there's a lot of resources today of guided meditations and visualizations or guided gratitude practices that you can even kind of start there getting some Mm -hmm. prompts and, and some pieces. Mm -hmm. And another one that I'm a big fan of this, unfortunately it's not free, but I, what I like about it is that it's passive in at certain times in our treatment not having to put a lot of effort into something might be the perfect thing is using acupuncture. And, and I find acupuncture can shift things on the physical and the emotional and energetic in such a profound way. And it's a very like massage or lymphatic massage in the book, you talk about, you know, body work and hands-on body work and things that that can be really helpful, especially in those places where, you know, someone has so much fatigue or so much kind of mental exhaustion and and challenges with brain fog that the idea of trying to put together something with their brain is just not accessible, but they can go lay on a massage table and, and acupuncture, hydrotherapy and massage therapy, you know, those kinds of tools can be unbelievably awesome ways to contribute to ourselves. And I do see a relationship between the mental, emotional and the physical. Yeah. 
you know, that happen with those kinds of things. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Amy, this is just like, you're, a, of course, you're a wealth of knowledge. We've packed a lot into the time we've had here. And I, I mean, I could keep going, but I think that like, there's sort of a natural, like the cup is full right now. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We've covered a lot of territory and I'm just speaking of, I'm, I'm so deeply grateful for who you are, who you are in our profession, the advocacy. I mean, throughout your entire career, you've been on boards you've you know been at the head of pioneering the the licensure in the state of Massachusetts you've made a difference for our profession in so many different aspects you're an avid writer there's articles by you you know you've just always been somebody i look up to as a leader in our profession and really moving things forward and i'm i'm eternally grateful for you and your knowledge and thank you thank for sharing you. it here really thank you. thank you and thank you for doing this podcast it's awesome absolutely absolutely well, we'll have all of your contact information, how to get the book will be in the show notes of the podcast on my website and available on all of the usual podcast platforms and people can get, you know, more information from what, you know, you've just, you have a breadth of, of information that's out there that's just, you know, people can Google it and read articles you've written and, and access that too for learning more. And the book itself has a lot of resources in it that you can take further, you know, you get the information there and then you can go deeper into it. So we'll make sure people are well supported. And until we get to do this again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. All righty. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Amy Rothenberg for her leadership and wealth of knowledge. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickport, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.